a universal psychological need is mastery of skill. Everybody wants to get better at something. It's just where are they going to have their focus? This is From Paint to Purpose, a podcast by FCP Services, where we believe people drive growth. Exploring topics related to company culture, leadership, and construction industry insights. Now your host, John Barsness. Welcome, everybody, to our uh, latest podcast uh, today uh, from Paint to Purpose. Uh, my guest today is just a wonderful leader. Uh, she has joined us uh, graciously early this morning in her world. Uh, and so I would like to introduce Melissa Frygang to uh, all of our listeners. She is a powerhouse leader out of Utah who is uh, doing some wonderful work to help change uh, the world as we look at it, especially for people's lives. So, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, why don't you tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, first off, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm I'm truly honored and I'm looking forward to the conversation today. So um, just a, a little high-level overview of my career. Um, I actually started in athletics. So I'm a first-generation college student. And the only reason I had an opportunity to go to university was because my parents, who really were the first generation to work my family out of intergenerational poverty, which is kind of a new concept right now. And, and we can certainly deep dive that concept later um, in the podcast. But, um, you know, I, I went to university because I had a physical talent. And so um, it afforded me opportunities in my lifetime. And uh, when I was there, I was on uh, a full ride scholarship, but but really in, in college, um, a full ride scholarship, I, I want to say, I think my first year that I was there, and this was a long time ago, I got $125 a month to live on, right, for food and rent. And um, I think it moved to 175 after that. But, you know, that's not a lot of money um, to get by. And so I had uh, administrators who, beyond coaches and beyond uh, your uh, teachers and faculty, um, really helped me access Pell Grants and, you know, all of the different uh, financial services and books and tutoring services and support services that I needed to be successful. And so when I, you know, really early on, when I started having that assistance, I realized that, you know, these individuals were really paying it forward. They were the team behind the team. And I decided that's what I wanted to be. And so I uh, got my first start at Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. I was an academic coordinator and I took care of my athletes in the same way that I was taken care of. Um, and I did compliance and, you know, I was a senior woman administrator and did Title IX and all of those administrative pieces, but really just took care of athletes and um, ran a student athlete advisory committee in the life skills portion um, was really my favorite part of that. And then I moved to uh, Weber State University as the associate athletics director. And I had a, a number of hats there. I administered sports and I did all the events, including, you know, the band competitions and uh, football and basketball and volleyball and, and you name it. I did all the game management. Uh, but on top of that, I did more of the internal operations and, and the student athlete uh, welfare portion of, of that as well. And then I um, actually moved to 
uh, an organization called the Clearfield Job Corps Center. And so that's a uh, Department of Labor. And I worked for a management and training corporation. They're a private uh, company that operates the Job Corps Center. Um, we're the third largest in the nation. And I was there for almost a decade. And we really did admissions, business, and community where we would onboard 45 students a week from six different states. And then we would place 90 students or graduates a month in jobs in those six states. Um, by the time we were done, um, and the time I exited to uh, uh, an industry placement, um, I had 40% uh, direct placements. So, you know, meaning that they didn't have to go back and find a home. We were hiring them directly um, from the center. Um, you know, and uh, work-based learning experiences and really looking at that flow and systems. And I know this isn't necessarily high level, I'm kind of d diving into to micro, but I, I feel like it's important, you know, for the next hour to, to lay some context. Um, and then I went to industry and we were the only private company that went after uh, federal dollars. It, they're called uh, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families or, or TANF is the short name for them. And we were the first um, in Utah anyway for TANF funds to uh, win an RFP. And I designed an intervention that I called tr Job Training and Placement, where we would really try to access um, these individuals that were underemployed, right? This concept that maybe they were um, highly qualified or, or had education or, or maybe didn't, had lots of experience, but maybe three jobs and they just couldn't quite get that uh, next career move uh, to wages sufficient to um, move them up that next socioeconomic level. Um, so we actually uh, placed and, and worked with about 300 individuals, moving them up that chain. And really what we focused on was just the employability skills, you know, childcare and healthcare. And right, it's, it's typically for employers, not uh, the skill level, because our, our universities and our, our training um, post-secondary and, uh, you know, both our uh, technical training institutions and our higher ed institutions are phenomenal and our high schools, right? They're, they're phenomenal. And so when, when people are accessing um, all of the educational institutions, they're coming out with just a phenomenal amount of skills. It's typically the employability skills, right? That you hire on paper, um, you know, for qualifications, but you fire on personality or showing up late or, you know, all of those, um, different things. And so we really identified and defined employability skills. And, and while I was there, uh, we worked with the University of Utah on a concept uh, called the Utah uh, Materials and Manufacturing Initiative, um, Advanced Materials and Manufacturing Initiative, UAMI, and um, helped found and start a, an industry um organization association that still thrives today which is kind of cool um, in the composites world um, in utah and, and northern utah specifically um, anyway um, all of that uh, said um, it was really all from my perspective focused around workforce development and employability skills and then um, i started uh, consulting for weber county and, um, on intergenerational poverty and you know, I think um, the whole time, all of my career has been taking these populations and really understanding the systems that they have to navigate and then how to gap fill and how to really deep dive uh, from a human centered design 
but looking at the systems, right? So, so you're looking at that bookend continuum. And so I take these populations, whether they're lower socioeconomic or, or poverty, or um, you take, you know, uh, student athletes in a year from inner city or highly privileged, um, high socioeconomic um, athletes, but you take these groups and you figure out what's gonna make them successful. And then you give them the opportunities and the resources to make that happen. And, you know, in a nutshell, I feel like that's what equity is. I think a lot of people have different terms for equity. I believe equity is holding everybody accountable to the same expectations, but then giving them the means to meet those expectations or, you know, opportunities. Well, that's fantastic. And I think what you just spoke to, especially as it relates to that employability uh, and the gaps, right? We we as an organization work with, uh, you know, our industry in the construction space is traditionally anyway, you know, a lot of, uh, of uh, labor that is either learned on the job or through a trade school. What we find, though, with many of our folks is that it's not the skills, as you pointed out, that they struggle with or can't learn. It's the basic things of any time something in their life changes, even minutely, everything else is impacted, including being able to show up to work on time or being able to just navigate those bumps in the road that so many others are able to do and take for granted. Uh, you know, if childcare falls through, they might have a support system at home or an emergency uh, that they can they can solve for themselves. Many of the people that we work with and 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 who uh, dedicate their their lives to working for our organization, those are things that they just can't navigate. And what we found is the more that we can provide them some of those tools, the better they are for not only our organization, but what we find is that they have an opportunity to actually see significant impact for their world around them. And, and, um, so that really resonates with me because we do see that every day. We, you know, we try to figure out how do we help people navigate some of the things that, um, just are life crushing. And they're, they're not even the, the, the things that often get heard, right? So we talk about high unemployment, or we talk about uh, uh, livable wages, and all those things are true and real. But much of what happens there and leads up to that is all of the things that aren't talked about. And I think those are the things that you guys are addressing uh, on a regular basis, which is how does pe how do people navigate and help find ways to use the resources that are all around them, both government and uh, private uh, industry. And for me, that's one of the things that I think we uh, have an obligation to do as an organization is yes, we're for profit. Yes, we need to make a profit. And uh, that's there's nothing wrong with that as an organization. But what we do with that is, is to me most important because if we're giving people the opportunity to have the same experiences that many of us have had uh, and opportunities, then it's our job to make sure that they can succeed when they get those opportunities. So I guess tell me a little bit about how you've been able to, to even use your unique skill set of bridging that gap between policy and practice because so much of what you're talking about, especially in um, – working with people who, who may not have those life skills uh, kind of buttoned up as, as they walk into the, the employment arena, uh, 
it's a practical issue. It's not a, a matter of just sitting around a table and talking about theory. It's how do we put this into practice so that organizations can help support the organization like yourself that are, that are running, but also how to connect with some of the resources that the government already uh, provides so we're not reinventing the wheel. Right. Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> and so I'll try to unpack that. So, uh, you know, I work off the philosophy of, um, so really my um, foundation is operational excellence. So whether you're looking um, at that in a, in a social organization, right, a service-based organization or a for-profit organization, we all have to have very efficient systems. But in that, you have to have a human-centered design. So you have to, right? Like, so the system has to be flexible and malleable enough to fit the humans that are accessing it, right? So, you know, it's, again, sort of that continuum, that bookend piece. So what, what we do is, you know, with these select populations, whether we're looking at intergenerational poverty um, or we're looking at reentry, right, into the community or reintegration or homelessness, um, or even just, um, there's a lot of intergenerational poverty families, and you kind of mentioned this, that are, um, you know, they never show up on the radar because they never access state assistance. So they're not uh, viewed as in poverty, yet they're just always on that that tipping point, right? Or that cliff, so to speak. So one bad thing happens and um, it, it can be catastrophic because they're always at risk or vulnerable. So, you know, the way we look at it is, you know, a lot of people assign um, if, you know, somebody's not showing up on time, they'll automatically make assumptions. And those assumptions are that person's not motivated. But when you really drill down a motivation and, you know, we're going back to like, you know, uh, biology or psychology 101 here, um, but that's really Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? That's the theory of motivation. So we're getting into the sort of science pieces of this. And when, um, and I'm sure you already know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but, you know, for those who maybe aren't as familiar with it, um, it's basically uh, sort of this foundational pyramid where they say, you know, you take care of uh, the the physiological needs of people, safety, security, food, water, etc., cetera. Um, and then you sort of move up this scale and then you have universal psychological needs. And I think we always, especially in our social services, think through and fund um, as a society, all of those physiological needs, but we never address any of the psychological needs, right? And so I think we piecemeal it in um, as an employer. For example, we might say, oh, well, let's do internships, right? And But why do internships work? It doesn't necessarily work because you um, are teaching somebody a, a physical skill set, right? It works because they create a relationship with someone that, you know, maybe becomes their proxy mom or dad, right? Or, or somebody that cares about them, right? And so that's one of the universal psychological needs of belonging, Right. They start to belong to your culture. And so I think there's a lot of things that employers already do, but I don't think they translate that to the human being. Right. And the universal psychological needs of belonging, mastery of skill and autonomy. Right. So no matter where you live, where you're born, which family you're born to, what socioeconomic class, we all have those universal psychological needs. And so I think as employers, if we can start to think through our system 
being able to address those universal psychological needs, those are the employers that absolutely do the best. And then it allows you, right, they say trust the process versus the end product, which is accurate, right? Like if you can base your system on that, and I think that's what really great HR directors do, and that's what we call the employability skills, right? Like you find out not only do they do individuals have the childcare or the medical coverage or you know those sorts of things but when they start to belong and they start to have a mentor and a role model they start to adapt to your company's culture and when that happens you know the world opens up for them right and and so the, what i would suggest though at that point is i think a lot of times when you get someone a diamond in the rough so to speak and they start to really flourish they start to do a great job in that position and i think what employers could probably look at is how do we build that person to the next level? Even though maybe it took a couple of years and a mentor, how do we develop those systems to get that person up and promoted, right? So that you have this pathway within this one employment or this employer, right? Not just workforce development. And and so I think um, I, I think something really important uh, to talk about as well is when everybody talks about workforce development. Um, I think we use that synonymously. And I think that that's an error for government to use that word. I think workforce development uh, fits very, very well for an employer. I think that's exactly what an employer does is they develop that person, they develop the people, right, in their pipeline, and that's workforce development. I think for those of us out in the community, um, you know, like Maya, Maya Angelou says, words matter. We need to start talking about labor utilization, right? Are, do we have every single person in our community, right, in the labor force? And I think if if we did nothing but teach people how to use the right language, I think that would really guide all of this work not necessarily for employers, because I think employers already get it and they know that, but I think from a social services uh uh, position, I feel like we would translate the language even tighter so it'd be easier for employers to access social service organizations. So I feel like there's a big gap in understanding knowledge, lexicon, right? And if we can start to just break down those bridges, I feel like that's where we really start to see a lot of that intersectionality. Um, and then I'll just say one more thing. Um, when you're talking about communities, they're ecosystems, right? That our community today is not what it was yesterday or the day before or the day before, and it's not going to be what it is 20 years from now. And so, you know, the work that I'm trying to do is not just short term. It is absolutely. But we're also looking at, you know, the five-year-old. What's going to be, you know, the ability for that five-year-old in this ecosystem, right? So again, I'm going from system and operational excellence, right? That efficiency piece, barriers, gaps, et cetera, um, and then the human walking through it, right? Whether that's a short-term endeavor or a long-term endeavor. And so when you're looking at, a lot of people talk about an ecosystem or economic development or community development as the people, infrastructure, and industry, right? Like if you think of it as a triangle, but when you, they're not siloed, right? So when you look at all three, industry will say, well, we need, labor, we need a workforce. Well, that's really a people issue, right? And so at the people issue, if you call it labor utilization, right, then you get more people who are not in the labor force. 
and education is great and vote vote or they don't call it vote training anymore that's how old i am <laughs> tech training right um on the job training work-based learning that's that's those are all pathways we've talked about but we would we assign education for example in the people place well i don't i think that education is infrastructure and even though infrastructure can also be bricks and mortar and roads, right? Like, of course, that's what it is. But if we don't start viewing education as a fundamental right, right, the wealth gap is going to continue. And so, you know, I feel strongly we have to find a way to um, get our youth um, and our adults actually into post-secondary, but not um charge as much, right? So that they don't pick up these loans and, and create this more vulnerability for them. And, you know, anymore, a bachelor's degree is almost the equivalent of what a high school diploma was way back when, right? Um, and, you know, if you read Putnam's work, he talks about the wealth gap and how to solve it. And I think his work is phenomenal. And um, so, you know, I won't, I won't uh, dive into that rabbit hole, but, you know, when we're thinking about the ecosystem, um, and the uh, socio-ecological model, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's sort of, right, it starts with the individual, and then it goes to the interpersonal relationships, and then it goes to the institutional, right? And that's where employers lie, right? Like, that's where they engage theoretically. And then you go to the community level. Well, at the community level, there's coalitions, but they don't typically have teeth, if you will, right? They're not typically tasked with the good of the community. Um, even if they are the backbone for talking about, say, food security, um, typically it's a nonprofit, but that nonprofit's number one mission is to maintain their organization, right? And yes, they want to do good, and that's awesome, but their number one is, is that they have to exist, right? Whereas the Center of Excellence, I'm super lucky because I get to be a public entity, right, with commissioners. And so I'm a combination of, I report directly to our county commission. I also report directly to our human services. So Weber Human Services, which is behavioral health. And then I also report to the Weber Morgan Health Department. So I get to um, have like operate in these different universes, but they shouldn't be different, right? Because social determinants of health are really some of those employability Right, issues, which is really just economic development. It's just that we have this different language. So I live in that community space and then you have policy on top of that. And so I hope I'm, I'm getting through to you. Like this is all to me. I'm jumping back and forth between science and then practice, right? Um, what the theory is and then how do you apply it? And so intergenerational poverty is child-centric very specifically right and then we have two gen strategies right which is that interpersonal because we know children have to have at least one uh, parent that they feel safe with and can talk to um, but they have to have at least one meaningful adult relationship that's non-parental right so how do you um in at a government like in a public system how do you codify that Right. That's really hard to do. Um, so we, and we can talk about this later, like social determinants of health or um, ACEs. But we're still looking at the universal psychological needs of children. And how does that parlay into employability skills and workforce development? Right. 
in 20 years. And so um, that those the socio-ecological system and the community development, if we can start to take those, and even though they have lines in them or they have, you know, buckets, it doesn't mean that the model means that you have to talk about each of those separately. In practice, we have to adopt those and come from that framework as we're thinking through the efficiency, right? And and instead of it being linear, we have to think in, I think, four dimensions, right? So in, and this is the last thing I'll say, and then I'll give you a chance no, to talk. You're so good. I'm sorry. You're good. Um, I always try to think through, in terms of our system, um, the healthcare model. You have to diagnose what's wrong, right? So you do your SWOTs or, you know, whatever you want to call them, gap analysis or, you know, systems analyses. Um, so you have to diagnose what's wrong. And then you have to uh, figure out the right treatment at the right time and in the right dosage. And those two, right, like we might figure out what the strategy is right, in terms of the right treatment or the tactics, but we never, ever talk about the right time and the right dosage, ever, ever, I don't think, whether you're an employer or your social services. And so um, when we can start to talk through all of those dimensions, I think that that's what will take us to the next level. Well, that's, you, can, you can feel the passion that you have for it, but I also think you, one of the things I heard very clearly, and certainly correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, but one of the things I heard very clearly, if I think of this from the lens of, of an employer's viewpoint, is we must engage in all of those areas as an employer in a community with a within a community, meaning we, we work like for us, we are a nationwide company. So our folks come from all over the country. Each of their communities, socioeconomic and otherwise, uh, have their own ecosystem. We have our own ecosystem as an organization as, and as an industry. And yet all of those things that matter to people are universal. And we have to find a way to plug into each of those things. And I think one of the things I look at often, because I balance both being an, uh, a trained as an HR professional for many years, but being a business owner and a business executive for most of my career, it's really taking all of the things that matter to us, which is creating a space for people to flourish in our organization and interweaving that into how we make money. Because if we're doing those things effectively, then we are providing people the opportunity, which is what you just, just talked about, especially around the equity for me, is I think you described that so clearly with what we really need to think about what equity looks like, which is providing people the opportunity that both comes with the timing and the ability to actually harness those opportunities for flourishing in their own way. And everybody comes at that in a different way. So even in intergenerational poverty, yes, we start with a, with a child-centric model, but they only find ways to think about that differently when their parent, parents, or next generations are are they're viewing it and seeing it themselves. So from an employer standpoint, I may not have a direct link to that child necessarily, but I certainly do to their parent. And if I can help them see life differently and opportunities differently, because I can present them with those things through the work that they do, which adds value to them and to us as a, as a uh, employer and to our customers, we've now created a layer in which we can start to fundamentally change 
our ecosystems, both in our company and uh, in the communities that we live. And so I think, and this is, this is, there's no easy answer to it, certainly, but I think it starts with us as business leaders to say, our job is much more than just providing an, empl- uh, an opportunity, a job for somebody, a wage for somebody. Those are all, to me, those are fundamental. You just do what's right because it's the right thing to do. We need to take that a step further and say, how do we help people envision a future that they never thought of when they walked in our doors the first time? And that's what motivates me to look at how do we, uh, how do we structure that as an organization? Every decision we make has to be made with flourishing in mind. We've actually talked about this as, a, as an organization. One of the things that I'm starting to do with one of the teams that I, that I manage is to create a centers of excellence mindset without the traditional organizational design of, of centers of excellence. Like those are all good things, but it really is about creating the center of excellence for how we help people flourish. And each level of the organization is, is empowered to find out what that looks like. And then we look at, well, what organizations are around us that we can partner with and, and find ways to make it a both and winning combination? Because right now we are all facing the challenge of how do we fill our pipeline with, with qualified people? Um, but I also look at it and say, I, the skills I can train, uh, I, I, I can do that every day. There, there's not, that's not my issue. It's finding the people who fit and want those opportunities within our culture. Uh, and, and then we can give them all the skills and training that they need. Um, and, and it, everybody wins when we do that because our clients are happy. We're making money as an organization, which means we can keep functioning. So I, I just, you know, what you described is, is I think something that if we can come together as a group of business owners and leaders, we can start to partner with organizations like yourself and other community organizations and the government and say, let's not think about this in our own silos. Let's think about this as a collective group. And how do we go about doing that? So tell me a little bit about from your perspective, how you've been able to bring private organizations to become part of that solution for intergenerational poverty and creating those opportunities for people so that, that we can bring that labor force um, into a place where people can actually flourish and find success and that the, the, the things that matter most to people, which is security, safety, and uh, an opportunity to belong, all function within those ecosystems uh, by providing livable wages for people. That's a part of that safety and security. We forget that sometimes. And, and I think sometimes we get into the argument of the dollar amount as opposed to what it actually means. Yeah. So again, a, a big one to unpack. I took lots of notes. So, um, but I'll try to be succinct because I think, <clears throat> you know, the, the answer isn't complicated. Right. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's really not complicated at all. It's it's quite simple, um, just hard to do. So um, and at the end of the day, it always comes down to funding. I mean, it just is what it is. And so, you know, my first gut reaction, and this is something that I um, am challenged with, is I still have to find funding to do the work that I do, right, to keep my team on board and and to do this work. And so um, <clears throat> I would say that uh, the number one thing is, is to really think outside the box what companies are doing with their money. And, you know, sometimes it can 
I don't know, I've heard people describe it as monopoly money, right? Like when you look at the cost to recruit and retain, right? That can be upwards to 50,000 to 100,000, depending on the position, right? And, and that's not an exaggeration. But what happens if you take that 100,000 for that one person and you have five interns that you hire with, right? Like um, as, you know, 10 hours a piece that then you recruit that one person who d- is the fit, right? That you don't just give them a two week trial. You actually can take five that you give an opportunity to, it doesn't mean that the four don't get the opportunity. They've been given the opportunity with a letter of recommendation and, you know, some skill sets and and also maybe some um, constructive criticism, like, you know, you really need to take a shower every day or, you know, something like that. Um, it can be as simple as that. And that can be, you know, a lot of times, and I don't care what socioeconomic class you're talking about, there are um, some people who have never been taught to brush their teeth every day. Um, and that's not a judgment. It just, it is what it is, right? Um, because when you are maybe coming from a family who has a parent who works three jobs, they don't have the resource of time, right? And the energy. And, you know, I think a lot of people might look down upon somebody like that, but that's, you know, you can really literally change somebody's life by by just providing feedback, right? And if you can always come at it with the best of intentions, you can provide feedback to anybody. That's my philosophy. So um, it can be weird, <laughs> right? Or or maybe a little uncomfortable, but as an HR person, I'm sure you've had lots of conversations that <laughs> like that. But you know, I Unfortunately, think yes. Yeah, but I think it's building a culture on our teams where that person's yours. It doesn't have to be the HR person, right? Why have it escalate to that point, right? Have everybody have this sense of belonging to have, you know, maybe this individual who's been there for 10 years, put their arm around someone. And I know there are HR issues with that too, right? But (laughs) in the right way, you know, hey, um, let me just provide you some feedback. I love you to death. You're doing great on XYZ. I think you could go even further if you did, you know, LMNOP, right? Right. So um, that's a big piece. Um, And then I think we really, really have to understand that a universal psychological need is mastery of skill. Everybody wants to get better at something. It's just where are they going to have their focus, right? So even if you have somebody who's involved in the justice system and they're involved in crime, they still try to do it the best that they can, right? And so, you know, people laugh at me to use that analogy, but it's a universal psychological need. So I think if we can get out of our stereotypes, right, and really think outside the box, and when we look at our labor force, our workforce, and we think workforce development, I think if we can just make our assumptions that everybody wants to do a great job, we just have to give them the tools. And a lot of times that tool is just plain feedback, right? Yeah. And and that can be really uncomfortable. But if we can make that a pervasive culture, a norm, right, among all of our people to be done in the exact in the right way. And I know that that can be, you know, if you don't have the right uh, culture or environment, that can get pretty tricky. But I think if you have this culture and everybody comes from that place that we all belong to this one team, right? That's what I learned in athletics. I think that that's what, you know, when you hire athletes, that's what they come with embedded, right? Well, we have to give everybody that opportunity, whether they've been athletes or not, um, to belong to a team and really look at it um, in that team level, right? Um, And then, and I think that's the system. 
right? We can talk culture, we can talk big picture or system, but that's sort of the micro unit when you think down that socio-ecological chain, right? Um, If you you put the, your company in the socio-ecological model, right? And I don't think people do that, but I think that's where if I were a business owner, I'd start there first, right? Is really try to map out, what does this look like? Um, What is our ecosystem? Because you might think you know, but I venture a guess that you might have some gaps, right? Um, And then the other pieces of this, um, which I think are gigantic is, um, yes, it's about wage. Yes, right, like, and and that's political and there's all sorts of, you know, minimum wage and and what does that look like? But I would say right now, you know, I always think, you know, let the powers uh, be, right? Like, that's gonna be what it is, right? And, um, but what I would do with my $100,000, right? Or 50,000, let's say, is I would start to reinvest that. So I would look at how do I pay for potentially workforce housing? How do I get childcare or how do I partner with a childcare service provider, right, to help my employees because I'm going to know what their socioeconomic status is. So I'm going to know if they're 200% of poverty and then I'm going to know if they're eligible for X, Y, or Z. And then I'm going to know which organization I want to partner with, right, because that's the standard of eligibility, let's say. I'm I'm talking hypothetically. Right. but if they're eligible for that and you partner with that agency, then that agency can actually provide them free childcare, right? Like it's accessing all the resources all the way down the line because when families are at risk, they're just surviving. Yes. I mean, and huge kudos to them, right? right. To, to just get food on the table. And that's a heavy lift, it's hard. Um, so when we're talking about, you use the word uh, envision, I would add maybe empower, mm-hmm. right? And um, I would say that if our employers can start to have that mindset shift, right? And it's not just up to them. If our service providers can start to think through, oh, what is it that we need for labor utilization, not workforce development, right? Right. Then that's what I call and, and the work I do with community resilience. Right. So, you know, we know what resilience is, but people don't typically talk about community resilience. And it's how do you come back from COVID? Right. And how do you bounce back from, you know, recessions or, or whatever you want to need to bounce back from? And I look at that um, specifically with our intergenerational poverty group. What we do is um, our families typically don't have the social capital. So typically when you hire or when you get a job, right, especially for me, it's been who you know. Um, So, you know, my first job, I didn't know anyone, but I called the person, you know, every week for six months until I got the job Um, and I got made fun of it. You know, he said he hired me because he was afraid of what I would do if he didn't. Right. Um, But other than that, um, in, in some ways, I got to know him. Right. So it, it was who, you know. And so when we have um, communities where we have talent and we want to go recruit from those communities, um, we can get more individuals from those communities when we create a system of social capital for them. It's a who, you know. Right. So when you have someone who maybe you've recruited out of a, a certain environment, right, you can get five to ten more because word of mouth is 
well, and you, and you guys do marketing, right? Word of mouth is the way to do everything. And that's really social capital. And, you know, we can get down into social capital. There's three types and there's the science behind it. And, um, you know, I work with a really, really smart gentleman. His name is Dr. Ben Gibbs at BYU here in Utah. And uh, we meet every other week um, and he deep dives you know, social bonding and, and all of that. And, and he's just brilliant. And I'm super lucky to have my social capital, right, of people helping me. Um, but when we think of that, our individuals who are in a certain population, that is their social capital. And so they're only going to be accessing the resources that they know about at the time. So if we can really bridge that gap. I think that's really important as employers. Um, and I think reaching out to those social organizations, um, the the social, and, and here's what I'll say about that. I would say um, one of the mindset shifts that's the absolute most important is getting what they call upstream, right? So a lot of times employers are dealing with downstream impacts of the social challenges that we're dealing with. Um, but if an employer can really think through upstream and, and what I want to uh, say to that is there are lots of evidence-based practices that you could access for free out of your public behavioral health, right? They have a prevention. You know, every community is a little bit different in, in terms of the system. But here in, in Weber County, we have Weber Human Services and uh, they're connected to the Department of Human Services in the state of Utah. And so when you follow that system down, there are evidence based practices for suicide prevention, for emotion coaching, right? Mostly you know, for children, um, but it's helping parents learn those skill sets and parenting skill sets, because what that does is that creates a more uh, stable family environment. So if you can start to even think through parenting skills for your parents, right? Um, suicide prevention, um, substance abuse prevention, right? Opioids is a huge uh, issue for a ton of our communities and it crosses socioeconomic barriers, right? And it impacts our employers. So, you know, when when we're thinking that, we do a lot of, um, oh goodness, the, um, the temporary assistance, which is fantastic for EO, anyway, I forgot yeah. the EAC or, or whatever, you know, the insurance is on the backside. But if we can start to get as upstream as possible with the human, right? Understanding what some of these issues are, the further upstream we can do, the more prevention we're doing, the more investing we're doing instead of cost down the road. And theoretically, when you're doing that, then you're starting to retain employees, right? Because you're working on not only their housing, for example, or if you figure out childcare for them, or you figure out medical costs, right? I would say if every employer could always offer a benefits package, even if you didn't have a huge wage, the benefits package plus some sort of housing package plus some sort of childcare package of some sort, right? Whether it's um, childcare on site or or some partnership or something, I would say um, those are way more important now than wages. Um, just like allowing people flexibility, almost way more important than wages. And I know uh, you know a lot of industries don't have that luxury, but when you do, I would just say. Um, especially learning from COVID, you know, if we can learn to allow for that uh, family, that life uh, work family balance, I think that that's really critical and, and not to silo, but 
we have to see these individuals um, not just as their family, but as individuals. And people need time. They need they just need their own time sometimes, right? And so I think um, those are really important. So, you know, theoretically, there's there's several uh, psychological and physiological needs. And I've just listed them all, right? right. And different examples. So, right. you know, back from, you know, science to, to practice. But I think you could create a self-sustaining model with your recruitment dollars and your retention dollars if you start to invest those upstream because i think that will pay dividends and you'll never capture the cash but you will i think um, have so much better of a culture you won't have a problem finding people you'll have better fits you won't have as much turnover right it's it's having trust and faith in that process not necessarily the product and then i think that like you said the profit comes right yeah or or the problems solve themselves almost um so so uh, sorry you asked one more question and and how do we do it so what i do with our generational poverty families is we have what we call resource integration coaches and those resource integration coaches are not social workers they're typically lived experience peers um they can be your best friend or they can be your kick in the butt Right. It kind of depends. Um, but what they have is one individual at every agency, the service providers. Um, so at your one stop, at your behavioral health, at your health department. Right. And what we do is we have that resource integration coach who is the instant social capital for that family. So that family will ask them to say, OK, parents, um, ask yourself, what do I need? right, to get to that next level. Um, and we build their family resilience. And I have a metric, you know, with tons of indicators that, you know, the way we measure that at baseline and then progress, um, because data is absolutely phenomenally critical, right? And I do out outcomes, not outputs. And yeah. a lot of people do outputs, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a difference there. Um, but then what, what we do is um, we have those agencies that we're partnered with they've actually modified the way they do business so that they have one person to work with our families. And it's literally, we've, we've been able to, so our mission for children is to create an environment where all children can exercise the power of self-determination, right? So that's that long-term, if they wanna be an engineer, what are those barriers, right? Long-term. And then we build family resilience, <clears throat> excuse me, which is the two-gen, right, uh, strategies. And then that's actually our community resilience. And if we can get our employers and our service providers and our community-based organizations all understanding the social capital for these particular families, all of a sudden you have quite a bit of community resilience, right? And you're starting to change your labor utilization at the really high macro level. And, you know, a lot of people, when they hear me talk, they're like, oh, I'm so overwhelmed, right? Like <laughs> you have, uh, you know, generational homelessness or generational incarceration. But, you know, like I said, it's really just eating the elephant one bite at a time. And when you understand both the theory and the practice and you just start to, take action, which is why we call it integrated community action now, or I can, right? Because nobody wants to belong to a poverty program. Like that's not nice, but words matter. So when you get into an I can program, that's super meaningful. And so I would just encourage employers to reach out to partners, but not in the traditional sense. Right. Really deep dive your humans 
and understand what resources they have available because I guarantee there are a ton and it's not difficult in today's day and age with the wages to be 200% of poverty. And you can figure that out uh, just by going online. You go to Health and Human Services, you can see household size and it breaks it down by wage, right? right? And you can see if somebody's in poverty and what degree of poverty they're in. And then you can go access these service providers. They will they will be elated, right, to be visiting with you because they try to, to get to you. Um, but that's that's a huge system, right. right? And they can't get to everybody. So if an employer gets a little bit savvy, you you could have so many resources wrapped around this family, and your HR person could literally be a resource integration coach, right? And and that would be so helpful to someone. And you would never have to necessarily, depending on the position, necessarily look at wage. And I guarantee you that. Even though when you start to have these industry uh, wage competitions, right, they leave for one place for a quarter more and then they come back for a quarter more, right? Instead of having um, that competition, when you start to uh, provide some of these other opportunities like parenting skills and nights out with your children, right? Like we know that right now for children, it's the adverse childhood experiences, right? We call them ACEs. And I'm not sure if you're familiar yep. with those, but um, we can deep dive those later if you want. Um, but there's also adverse community experiences. So if you live in uh, places with poverty, or if you live in economically distressed areas with no opportunities, right? Or no grocery stores or, right? Those can be considered ACEs. But we know that resilience trumps ACEs. And resilience can be having a best friend, having you know a parent that uh, you feel safe with and can talk to, and having these what we call advantageous childhood experiences. So when we can start to have our parents in a two-gen strategy, even start to have time with their children, that literally will pay dividends for a community and economic development. You know, for the next really short term, right, from an employability standpoint, because you stabilize that family. Um, and our numbers show, so we keep um, school absenteeism, we keep uh, literacy, numeracy, um, we keep all of those indicators. And every single one of our children, when you stabilize that family, every single one of them gain. And we don't have a literacy program. We don't have a numeracy program. All we're doing, doing is stabilizing the family, but that adult becomes a better worker, right? And that child goes into the classroom ready to learn. And then the programs that we're paying for as taxpayers, right? It allows the teachers, these wonderful, wonderful teachers to not go out of their swim lane, right? They get to then teach. And so that again is sort of this macro level community resilience. And it sounds, you know, so indirect as I, as I hear it come out of my mouth, but it works and I have the evidence to prove it, which is super fun, right? To have the data behind the theory now. Well, and I think that, you know, you talked about we have to eat the elephant one bite at a time. I think in many cases, especially for employers, we know our demographics. We know the cultures and the, and the communities that they live in. And again, in most of them, there are one or two primary drivers for why people are struggling. And so for us as an employer, we, if we know those things, if we are in tune with that, 
we can take that one bite and we are doing our part. We're not going to solve it all. That's not our job. However, it is something that we can influence. So like for us, we know in our industry, there is a high level of alcoholism. There is a high level of drug use. And so as we understand that, we not only can partner with those people in that lane, because we're also attracting people who might be coming from that and saying, I can't get a job anywhere else because nobody will hire me. We look at it and say, well, we'll give you a chance because we not only have it, we have a built in support system because we have a lot of recovering alcoholics and, 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 and folks that are struggling with that. So once they get to a stabilized position in their own life, they want to give back and we can introduce people into our environment because we're capable of, of managing and helping them learn those skills to cope with and overcome some of the challenges that might trip them up. And, and so I, I would encourage every other employer too that is listening to this, you know your demographic, you know those challenges, solve that. Don't worry about solving the other 10 things that, that are real and that are important, but aren't in your lane either to, to solve because that's not, uh, that's not where you can make the impact. Because I do believe that it is that stabilization. When we can provide as an employer a place where the, the people who work for us, whether they are single parents, whether they are in a intact family, if you will, or whether they are single and with no kids and are early on in their careers, if we can provide them with that stability, that mushrooms out across the 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 community um and so that's where i i guess i look at it and say we can do our our part and it may be small or it may be big or it may be in between uh but we need to step up and do something because it and by the way from a selfish standpoint as an employer it helps us too it's not as if it has to be altruism all the way through because that's not real either uh, the reality is there are hard re- uh, facts for everybody, and we all have to do something uh, to provide, whether that's, as you talked about, funding for your own programs. You need to find that funding. That's the reality. For us, we have to make a profit. That's our reality. Um, but what we do with it and how we go about doing those things, I think, matters. It's why we talk about that in our culture so much. We live our, our, our culture through our values, uh, and those exude everything that we do. And, and I think, um, you know, it's also recognizing that we're not perfect. And uh, I think when, when, when we can walk into a room uh, and people can look at, at maybe the position I hold or the, the, the assumptions they make about me because of, of those things and think, well, I can never get there because I don't have this or that. And, and, and we can both walk into the room together and go, yeah, we can help each other because, listen, I'm going to stumble and fall on my face tomorrow too. Uh, and I have my own trip wires. They may be different than yours, but I got them. Uh, and we just got to learn how to navigate those. I've been fortunate in my life. I've been given the opportunities, but I also took advantage of the opportunities I was given. And so I always challenge people that way too, is that, uh, you know, I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't stumble into this because I got lucky as much as I got opportunity. And, uh, and I had a lot of people surrounding me that gave me the, the kick in the butt when I needed it, but also the, the hug when I needed it too. So, um, 
so I, I would say we're, we're kind of coming up to our time and I want to be respectful of that for everybody. Uh, but, uh, I'd leave it, uh, kind of as a last for you to, to any lasting, uh, uh, comments or suggestions for employers that might be listening to this, uh, and, and thinking, I, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to inter- integrate this in, but I want to, uh, some lasting words of wisdom, I suppose, for the, for the, our audience. Yeah, John, thank you. And, and I also want to be mindful, so I'll, I'll be brief. I think I'll try to be brief. Uh, I warned you at the beginning. So um, what I would say is um, I think that employers currently, um, they all want to do their part with corporate responsibility. I think you're right at the beginning of the podcast. I think uh, maybe they just don't know how or or they think what they're doing is working. They're really, really trying. And what I would say is um, you were spot on in your last comments. And I, I, one of the things I've learned is control the controllables. You can't control what the outcome is necessarily, right? But you can control what you put into it. And I just, um, I live by that, that mantra. Like you take care of you um, and do what you can and uh, the results will come. And, you know, uh, I think this corporate responsibility can't be what the trend is. You have to look internally and see what fits your organization and what fits your humans, whether it's the leadership humans, right? What fits what they want to do. And your uh, demographics, you're spot on. Those individuals, um, you can have a peer, but if they don't have a peer that is successfully recovered, they're not, they're going to be appreciative, right? But they're not going to really feel like they're, they belong. They're going to feel like they're different. Um, so I think that that's um, really insightful of you. And then the last thing I would do is, um, you know, from a profit perspective, you don't have to necessarily sell more widgets to gain a profit, right? You can reduce costs to increase that net, right? So I would just push for that. And, and I would say from a human perspective, when you're thinking about your employees, look at things like get a piece of paper out and they say, if someone is spending more than 30% of their income, right? Or 30% of AMI, average median income, then that's too much, right? They're going to struggle. And I would say, look at uh, your positions and have a page per position per wage, right? And then define that by household size. So for an individual, they're making this wage, right? What what, like, are they 30% of the area median income for a one bedroom? Just literally look at the numbers. And I think if you look at the numbers, it, it's going to just really uh, expose all the different things. Like all of a sudden, I think y- your teams or um, people working on this will see like, oh, well, we could do that. Oh, we could do that. We could do that. We could do that, right? So I think no matter what, you just keep peeling back the layers of the onion because there's always more to do and to realize. But I just think that we have to look at our efficient systems in a human-centered design methodology. And if you can do just that, I think that it will pay massive dividends uh, for employers, for individuals and families, long-term, short-term, and our communities. It, It will just make our communities way more resilient. And thank you so, so very much for inviting me. Well, I appreciate the time. Thank you. This has been fantastic. Thank you, John. It was super fun to talk to you today. Thanks for listening. 
To learn more, visit fcpservices.com. Until next time, remember, people drive growth.